I don't know what they have to say. It makes no difference anyway. Whatever it is, I'm against it. No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it. Your proposition may be good, but let's have one thing understood. Whatever it is, I'm against it. And even when you've changed it or condensed it, I'm against it. I'm opposed to it. On general principles, I'm opposed to it. Hey, I'm Michael Patton. I'm really excited about this because I am going to be able to shut down everything that Samson says. And I should be able to do that because I'm the president of Credo House Ministries and I've got this THM from DTS. Now listen to what he has to say. Hey, I'm Samson Kovach. I'm from the Theology Pit and I'm really excited that Michael's going to shut down everything that I have to say. Uh, that's, that makes me excited. I have a MAR from uh, TSM. <laughs> I'll just, I'll say it like that. This is Divergent Theology, where we take topics, Michael and I both have bit different backgrounds theologically, and we sort of clash them together, and we, we see what happens when the world of theology actually doesn't agree with itself. Action. Yeah, you're picking up what I'm putting down. I mean, that's that's exactly yeah. this, you know, this, this these two views that I kind of surmise just from looking at the way people talk about, you know, the, uh, their church life and the way yeah. they behave. And I think that these last two, honestly, are the most the reoriented faith, either initiative or receptive, are probably the most commonly practiced, but least articulated. Yeah. I think yeah. that many people like like with when you were talking about Sola Scriptura. People think about it like one way, but they really practice it in a different way. And and, and they kind yeah, of do that. Yeah. And so the reason why I, I I went through these 10 different, you know, subdivisions that, that I went through is to show that no matter where we're coming from, there is always this this action that is happening on behalf of of the believer the believer is doing something we have to do something with faith yeah and 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 yeah. this becomes problematic and so when i went through the systematic theologies and i i i surveyed them i surveyed three of them in in my thesis and then i uh surveyed some topical books and then um the commentaries and it brought me to this question of why are we here like, how did we get to this point in the conversation? Has this always been the conversation? Has this always been how we're understanding faith? And I, I think I actually found the spot, one of the, one of the main spots that sent us on this direction. Um, the first problem that we have is our Western culture. And I don't mean modern Western culture. I mean the, the, the Greco-Roman interpollution into Christianity and the way that we think about things. Um, that, uh, actually St. Athanasius was the first one in his, in his arguments with Arius that actually sent us on this course that really started doing this. And the reason why I picked up on this was because of, uh, Ian Wallace's book, um, the, uh, faith of uh, Jesus Christ in the early Christian traditions. And he, in the beginning of it sort of maps out what's the Jewish understanding of, of faith. How do they think about it? And they think about it in a, a, like a narrative form. 
You know, we think about it categorically, yeah. which works for us because it works in our um, uh, in the way that we think, in the way that we process things. Uh, another benefit of uh, going to the school that I, I went to, um, I don't know if, if you're aware or if, if the audience is aware of how big the Anglican tradition is in Africa. Like it's enormous. Mm. Like, like if you, really? like the school that I went to is an, it's an international school. And if you are in a country in Africa and you study at, at Trinity school for ministry, like you are literally on the, on the road to being a Bishop. Like there, I mean, yeah. there's no doubt about it. If you, if you get your MAR there, yeah, you're on that track. If you get your MDiv there or your STM, yeah, you're going to be a bishop of, of, you know, parts of the countries. Yeah. And so I was able to interview, you know, a couple African bishops and, uh, and, and um, speak with some uh, Reverend canons and um, just hang out with the African students and, and have discussions with them. And when you talk about justification and stuff like that with them and you, one, one of the things this, I thought this was the most interesting new students, whenever they come in there um, was always like a luncheon where people, if they wanted to get up and share their testimony, and it was very typical, you know, you'd have people get up and yeah, you know, um, growing up and I, I did this and I came to the realization that Christ is my Lord and savior. I gave him my, you know, my, put my trust in him. Like, like that was all that the African students were completely different. It was, well, I saw the faith of my mom and I saw my cousin get saved and I saw my uncle and I saw my, you know, my village and my tribe and what, and I said, you know what? Yeah, Christ must be our savior. Like it was it because communally is how they think. Um tribalism is is yeah. very popular and it's a big problem in Africa also, but but that mentality of, you know, God does not justify. He doesn't redeem individuals. He individ, he, he redeems people. That's what he's always done. Um when I ask them, you know, tell me about how do you explain justification? in your culture? How, how do you get that across? And they say, oh, that's really easy for us because we talk about Christ's sacrifice because blood sacrifice is a part of their culture. Somebody gets married, yeah. you know, there's a blood sacrifice, somebody, um, a baby naming ceremony, blood sacrifice, like anytime blood yeah. is shed, you know, for feasts or like whatever, it's, it's done right there. And it has that meaning. So for you to go up to someone and say, Jesus Christ shed his blood for you. That's a yeah. huge impact on them because yeah, but that that's not communal right there. That's individual. Well, no, because it's the sacrifice of blood in there. While as community affects it, always you know people are always going to think selfishly. It's not as if you go to a different community and they're thinking, well, uh, uh, you know, I'm standing a bullet from anybody and that's all I want to do. It's you know we have self preservation. Yeah, you, you'd be surprised and, though, and you, especially point. when um like one of uh, one of my friends was from uh, northern Kenya, specifically uh, Marsabit, which is like 99 percent Muslim. And so for them, yeah. like his, his father was a, um, was an imam who had his own madras and became a, a Christian. So, so, so you want to talk yeah. about like a, a communal understanding because you're talking about people who, when this happens, they lose their community. Like this is a, this is a huge deal. So the oh, church yeah. has to yeah. come in and be this, this communal, you know, redemptive understanding. So that shedding of blood for Christ was not, you know, so much just for you individually, but for anybody that wanted it, it was for, it was for everybody. It was for that yeah. people. And oh, so, yeah, and sure, so, sure. 
but people do have. I mean, you're not denying that we we have a personal. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm just what I'm talking about is how Christians in the Eastern, like Christianity, how they understand the redemption. That I think that would do us yeah. well to add to the way we understand in Western. Not only do we do we understand sure. it individually and rightly so, but we should understand it corporately also. And I think that especially yeah. as Americans, yeah. our sense of individualism is so far like out there that that's the only yeah. way that we can think. And so it becomes extremely difficult for us to think past faith as an individual thing. Well, did you know, did you know, I mean, I could be wrong about this and I've, I've said it for years and nobody's ever said anything different and I, I've never noticed anything different, but Galatians two in Galatians two, um, it says, um, uh, yeah, Galatians 2. I should have gone down a little bit further. <clears throat> but in Galatians 2, verse 20, it says, uh, I've been crucified with Christ, so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Did you know that's the only place that I've ever found in the Scripture where it says God loves an individual? I mean, every other time it's the church, the world, it's Israel, his people, the sheep, you know, on and on it goes. But this one, you know, along with the good shepherd, are, that's yeah. an illustrative one. But this one and the good shepherd are illustrations where he does say um, he he gave himself up for me. Not to bring that up to contradict any of your thing you're saying, actually, to say that the exception provi- proves the rule in some sense. I mean, it's it's the same thing whenever you come to, you know, all, all of our hymns and stuff. Mm-hmm. You hear those? And it is very much a communal thing in, in uh, hymology, yeah. hymnology. But whenever you come to worship songs, it's usually a very yeah. personal thing. And it changes to me. Jesus loves me. Die for me. You know, that kind of stuff. And change the wording around. But not saying that that's not true. You know, I mean, Paul wasn't wrong whenever he said this in a very personal way, because I think it's the most personal uh, way that ta- Paul talks about his relationship with Christ. But uh, but also to just illustrate how much how much communal aspects of our faith did come yeah and if you if you look at the uh pericope of that section um from like 15 down to 21 he starts out very communal and and like and like narrows it down to an individual i mean even even in saying Uh um in, in like verse 20 like you know i have been uh crucified like the 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 way that he's talking about that is in um I believe it's in the in the perfect tense. So it's that you know past event that has a present and ongoing uh, reality to it. So you know yeah. and and yeah. Um, um you know the, the same type of thing. But he's moving that in. And your translation's wrong. It should be faithfulness of the Son of God. Um in in your translation, that's a that that's that's <laughs> problematic for you. Um yeah. But uh. But that it is it is very personal and it's individual. And it's I think that Paul is doing that intentionally. I think he's intentionally trying to like draw it down in in that funnel that it's like it's like when you look at the um, the Passover event in Exodus. OK, was the Passover event? Yeah. Was it individual or was it was it corporate? And this is what yeah, this very- very much corporate thing that has individual. Well, this is where it gets fun because in the liturgy, in in Exodus, when they are to tell the story, it gets personal. It gets into the the um you know individual pronouns of I. Like when your when your son asks you why yeah. is tonight different from other nights, you say because it's when the Lord 
saved me, brought me out of Egypt. Yeah. So in the liturgy, yeah. it's individual, where the context of it is corporate. And yeah. I think Paul is following that Jewish understanding, that 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 narrowing, that you know, that funneling. Yeah. Which is yeah, which is is a great piece. I did um. My Greek exegesis class, this was my uh, project, Galatians 2.15 to 21. So I've ripped that thing. Of, I, I wrote, oh, really? I wrote yeah, 50 pages on, yeah. <laughs> on that section. I really, really enjoyed it. I, I actually yeah. I compared the, um, the subjective yeah, genitive and it's the objective stuff. genitive w- within it and, uh, and looked at some stuff. And um, yeah. I, I, I think that... Yeah, yeah. Dan, Dan, has it, Dan has it as the faithfulness so much so the Net Bible is. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I disagreed with him on a, on a couple places in, um, in, in 216, I actually thought that... Yeah, yeah. You disagreed yeah, with yeah. Dan? Um, and you expect yeah. me to listen well, to you? W- once I tell you that I, I agree... <laughs> just kidding. Once I I'm tell you kidding. that I actually agreed with the authorized version, then that, that trumps Dan, you know? So, uh, but, yeah. but no, in, uh, um, for yeah, sure. Galatians two sixteen, faith of Christ, I thought was more appropriate um, than faithfulness of Christ. I, you know, I, I, yeah. I went that direction with it, but, um, but yeah, that that was another paper I might have to put online too. That was a really fun one. Um, uh, my my professor tolerated me doing it, and actually, my my professor for um, Greek exegesis, he was um, the Anglican Bishop of the Horn of Africa for eight years, and I studied global Anglicanism with him too. So I my my background on um, you know African culture <laughs> and Christianity is like you know by proxy. Yeah. I just I, I tend to get a lot that, and he made me do a, a a research paper on something that he wanted to know more about, and so I had <laughs> I had fun with that. But anyways, to to kind of get back to it, um. You know, to to where we sort of differed on that. Um, it's it's interesting when you trace the history of the relationship between faith and justification and what has happened to it. Um, one of the things that happened, and like I said before, with Saint Athanasius um, and his uh, writings with Arius, the the casualty of that actually became the faith of Christ, because you didn't want to use faith to say that, um, you know, Jesus lacked something and therefore he needed to have faith of. And so he was less than divine, you know? And so it, so his faith became a casualty to the point where you can actually trace that through, um, um, uh, uh, through Augustine and you can trace it through, um, especially, um, Thomas Aquinas, so that this is probably the part you're talking about when we're talking about the uh, translations kind of affecting the way we read some scripture, um, right? Yeah, I would, but I would actually say it's more uh, with our modern translations. It's more uh, John Calvin that influenced it than yeah. this. But this, but this took us on this trajectory because by the time you get to Aquinas yeah. in the Middle Ages, it was not according to um, Gerald of Collins, who um, is a Roman Catholic and, and wrote a great book on Christology. Um, by the way, by the way, just as a side, you're you're losing me a whole lot of stuff as we go through. So I know you're going to be losing the audience. Okay, I'm okay, to okay, all right. Other stuff. Okay, there's a lot of smaller tangents that you keep on going down, and I know that that's going to lose. All right, let me people, let me know? then then you need to put up a sign, and you need to <laughs> rate, rope me in here. Okay, so so he. <laughs> well, I, I was trying. I have been trying to. I don't know really exactly. <laughs> well, no, no. If if you just say. You're getting so excited about it, so I'm like, yeah, let him go for a little while. He'll probably yeah, I, I won't. This this just kind of goes up. Uh, oh, hey, I didn't see you there. I am Samson Kovach. I'm the 
co-host of Divergent Theology and the host of uh, The Theology Pit. Here to take a moment of your time to, you know, shamelessly plug some of our stuff that we do. Now, I know you've been asking yourself while you're watching these episodes of Divergent Theology, hey, how can I become a Divergent Theologian? Well, that's a great question. First thing you have to do, well, you have to know why you believe what you believe. And the reason for that is because you have to know what's in the realm of, let's say, non-heresy and the realm of heresy. You have to know how far you can go and diverge in each direction and still remain an Orthodox Christian. What's that? <laughs> yes, the best way to go about doing that, in my opinion, is to go to crudohouse.org. Now, what I would recommend is you start off with the discipleship program. Discipleship program is a great way to get an introduction into, you know, what you believe as a Christian. It's broken down into uh, 10 sessions here. Michael's done a good job with this, uh, looking at the Bible, mankind, the Trinity, Jesus, faith, like um, living with God, those sort of things. Um, it's in, you know, two separate sections, but this is if you really are new to the faith or kind of you're thinking of a way, hey, how in my church can I teach something? This is a great, uh, great ministry tool. But you're saying, Samson, look, I'm already a Christian. I've been a Christian a while. I want to go deeper. Oh, okay. We have the theology program here. I would say you start off with your introduction to theology. You can all find all of this stuff, credohouse.org, and uh, go through the six-course program, and you'll know a little bit more about why you believe what you believe. Now, as a divergent theologian, and I've you know taught and worked with uh, Credo House, even back when it was called Reclaiming the Mind, um, on my podcast, you notice the Theology Pit, where you can go to theologypit.com, you can get great things like mugs and shirts. I have some new shirts that I made up. says, I can do all things through scripture taken out of context. Support the ministry that way. You'll notice that I diverge a little bit more. I'm neither a Calvinist nor am I an Arminian. I'm free to do that. Uh, there are other things out there, and we'll get into that a little bit more. But that's where you can be a divergent theologian. So check out the sites. Check out the the books and all the wonderful resources that we have at both of these sites and the podcasts. Don't forget Theology Unplugged, one of the biggest podcasts, theological podcasts on Apple. Another nice little tip when you're learning Greek, use cards. Use your Greek cards as bookmarks. It's great. Apocrinomai. Hey, <laughs> answer indeed. Oh, Michael, what are you thinking? Up. Um, okay, so let's 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 walk through this in a. Um, uh, uh, let, let me break it down here in in in, in what's going on. So in the early church, okay, in the early tradition, the way that they understood faith um, and and the the hypostatic union was that Jesus Christ had faith. Okay, this is why, you know, and, and, and you teach this in your wonderful soteriology course um, on why the recapitulation view of the atonement was one of the earliest ones. Okay, because if Jesus did everything that we were supposed to do, 
explain the recapitulation theory because I don't think anybody's. Well, why a lot of I've been talking a lot. Why don't you explain the recapitulation? You just have the senior level people. Well, yeah, you're right. Though recapitulation is an early view, and it has to do a lot with the Eastern Church. But it, it is something that oftentimes we don't even hear, even though there's nothing in this view that causes us to reject it because you may hold to what we traditionally call so uh, uh, substitutionary mm-hmm. atonement that Christ's death took place, and that is where the transaction between God and Christ, and therefore us and Christ, takes place. It's all on the cross. Christ meets God the Father, satiates his wrath, and then we meet Christ, get Christ's um, imputation. Well, the early church had a view of the atonement. Now, this wasn't complete. It wasn't everything, but they did understand that there was this idea that Christ, in his life itself, by doing what we could not do, fulfilled what it was that the original Adam was supposed to do, and therefore gained his ability to hang on the cross as this new representative. But he had to be fully human. Now, I don't, I, I can't explain all that because I got all kinds of questions. If, if Christ were here, I'd say, wait a minute. All right, well, why'd you? Why? Why didn't you live till you're 70? And, you know, well, why did you have to just die on a cross? I mean, did you have to die on a cross? Did you, I mean, you didn't really make it that far compared to a lot of people today. And so you don't recapitulate their life. But the whole idea is that he lives through the stages. And at least the early church saw him as fulfilling the stages of Mm -hmm. humanity. And in doing so, gaining the right to become our savior. Now, I believe that that is absolutely true. And in that sense, he had to be fully human because, and he had to live a human life. And uh, I don't know how long he had to live in order for this to take place, but uh, we will, we'll just leave that in God's hands. But the recapitulation theory says that it's a good, it's a, it's a great one. The way I look at the different atonement theories is that they're, they're all correct. They're just all incomplete. I think when you bring them all together, yeah. and if you look at um, Tom Torrance's work throughout his life, the reason he focuses a lot on the Christus Victor and the recapitulation view yeah. because he said it's a very neglected view in Reformed theology, it and it's it's an important view that we should be reminded of. So he's so he's he yeah. wasn't making the argument ever that you know the vicarious substitutionary view should be thrown out. It was that in addition to yeah. that, like Christ, he he even made went so far as to say his incarnation, birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. All of those are important. Yeah. And our atonement theory should consist of all of those. The, the problem was in with faith and with Christ's understanding. I mean, there, um, uh, who was it? Uh, Apollinarius, who was denying that Christ had a, a mind, you know, and I, for, I forget which... Um, which, which church father was it said it that um, he who says that Christ uh, did not have a human mind is himself mindless and not worthy of salvation. And, and so this, this yeah. understanding of him not having being fully human and so not having faith. Gregory of Nisa. Gregory is that, okay. Nisa. Yeah. That's, that's that sounds right. So um, what we've been talking about is, you know, faith, which we receive and faith, which we express. But when you go back to the early church, it was faith was understood a little bit different. And there's actually a, a, a three way, a threefold way of understanding it, a trilateral way of understanding faith. And these these three ways are um, defined as the theological function of faith, the paradigmatic function of faith and the canonic function of faith. Okay. And, um, Ian Wallace mapped this out, but you can find it in, um, 
catechisms. When I, I took a course on the history and theology of catechesis development, and that's one of the things that I noticed in the way that they did catechism back then when they talked about faith. They talked about it using the mustard seed illustration. They're like, it's a small thing, but it has all of these branches and it's huge. It has like all these parts that are all part of faith. We can't just say it's just one thing. It's, yeah. you know, all these, um, yeah. all these big things. So the way that we need to um, uh, look at this, let me see in, in my notes, make sure that I have them like, like spelled out the, uh, the right way here. Um, okay. So we'll look at the, um, the paradigmatic function of faith first. And the way that they understood it was like a, uh, it was, it was a subdivision of, of Christ's faith and his discipleship. So you had the miracle workings that he did that was done through faith and also through the faith of others and then his suffering and martyrdom. So those would be put under that, the, the paradigmatic function. Okay. The theological function um, was Christ's faithfulness, his faith and faithfulness, and the righteousness of God. So we can we can see that in like Romans, Galatians, Philippians, like that's all present there. And Jesus as the faithful high priest in Hebrews. And then the third function, this is the one that we normally associate faith with. Because when I when I give you this definition, you're gonna be like, yeah, that sounds exactly like how we think about faith. And it's the canonic function. It's that Jesus is the source, the object, and the substance of faith. And that sounds exactly like how we talk about it, okay? So when we look at, when I looked at um, some of the church fathers, and, and one in particular was Cyril of Jerusalem and his um, catechesis that he had, the way that he explained faith had all three of these functions as a part of it. And it's like we've necessarily moved the first two out, okay, the paradigmatic and the theological function, and we just stuck with the canonic, mostly because it's it's um, it's easier to compartmentalize for teaching. If you want to talk about faith, this yeah. is it. What, what does it mean for you? What does it yeah. mean? How do, how do we teach? And 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 also defending the faith, apologetics. You know, if you ask somebody, well, you, you say that you're justified by faith, well. What do you mean? Well, you see, God's righteousness is, well, no, wait, justified by faith. Yeah, that's what I'm getting to. And everything that he did through Israel and and Christ doing things and and the fact that, you know, um, you know, it was the faith of the the men who dropped the, the paraplegic down, like, you know, before him. It wasn't the, that man's faith. And, and he worked through the faith of others and he did all this. Okay, I still don't understand. What do you mean? Okay, look, the canonic understanding is it's by Christ that you have this faith, and well, it, it just it became an easier didactic method to you know to to go about doing, and 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 so sure. yeah, it seems to be in the scriptures it was too. I mean, a lot of times it is very simply, you know, whether whether it's uh, you know people saying brothers, what must I or sirs, what must I do to be saved? And it's just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know. And, it's 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 a simple way, and I think we always look for mm-hmm. simple ways, and I don't think there's any anything wrong with that because sometimes it is so simple that you know you, you put it this way, but it's when we start nitpicking at it so much to say, well, you know, what what is this? Uh, what is the what are they implying by this preposition? I think we overinterpret the scripture way too much yeah, often, w- you know, uh, and, and take things and just 
add too much theological value to to you know tenses and prepositions yeah. and stuff like that that were never really. And you know what's intended. interesting is that we we a lot of times claim to use a historical grammatic literary hermeneutic, but we never do. Like we we use a we use a, uh-huh. a, a reformed literary grammatical hermeneutic. You know, we don't use that. We, we throw the historical <laughs> part out because when you when you really dig into the historical uh, part, it's like that person that comes and says, sir, what must I do to be saved? Well, that person already holds to the the paradigmatic understanding of faith and the theological understanding of faith. They are just being given that canonic understanding that you have now received this faith because of Christ. It's because of what he has done that then they can incorporate into it. So a lot of times, like like when you see things where, um, you know, people are saying, um, you know, call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Well, those people already believe in Yahweh. Like they already believe in God. Like it's not this isn't something new that they're being proposed. Like choose this day whom you may serve. It's like, well, yeah, they already know like all of that background of who Yahweh is. They're not just like, oh, we didn't know who God was. No, you, they did. Like that's the historically that's, that's where they're at with this. And so um, what you have is with, with Athanasius. Okay. And, and back to him, like fighting with, uh, with Arius, he started lending credibility to the idea that Jesus could not have faith because faith was seen as this deficiency. Now you start moving this through time. Okay. And it gets, starts to get solidified uh, under this, um, this understanding of the hypostatic union. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, extremely influential theologian. I mean, influential on Calvin, influential on Martin Luther, on that theological worldview there in his Summa Theologica, he has sections in there where he denies that Jesus Christ has faith. He flat out comes out and says, Jesus does not have faith. And he gives reasons for it and just says that, you know, it's just an, an impossibility. He can't have faith. And because of this, the common understanding, like I, like I said earlier from uh, Gerald O'Collins, a, a Catholic theologian, the common understanding of the medieval church was that Jesus Christ does not have faith. Now, modern um, Catholics do not believe that. And my um, my advisor um did I think he I think he did his master's thesis on Aquinas and he hated it when I slammed Aquinas all the time because I was like, I'm not as impressed as you are with him, you know, yeah. and, and especially that. And anytime he yeah. say something like great, well, Aquinas was so great here. I'm like, dude, he denied Christ had faith. He's like, well, he did say that. You know? And I'm just like, look, th- this is where we get to. So now you're you you have this reformed world where they are trying to engage in the Catholic Church. With, with the Roman Catholic Church, which be, what becomes the Roman Catholic Church. And they're already putting the stress to the understanding of grace. Okay. And now if they want to start stressing, you know, the, the philosopher of the Catholic Church. And even today, like if you, if you go to Catholic Church and says, who is the philosopher that we should uh, adhere to for our understanding of Scripture? They will say Thomas Aquinas. And, and that's it. So that's who you go to. So that's what they're doing. So I don't think that they were going to go after faith. And I don't think that necessarily they even really thought to, because it was, you know, sort of somehow just by faith, we are righteous. We, we are justified. We can't really ferret that out. What we know that it's not is grace being poured into us. That's changing us. That's making us savable. It's a forensic declaration, but what is that forensic declaration? And, and, and how does that work and how does that work within faith? And, you know, so that's where we started like moving through this. So 
there was another, there were, there are two other aspects with, um, Martin Luther. And I don't, I don't know if you've, um, ever read the, the 97 thesis. He wrote it like a, a month before mm-hmm. the 95 thesis. Um, it was, it mm. was dealing with, um, with, with the humanists and, uh, and, and the scholastics and their understanding of, um, uh, Ficari quad in or, or doing the best that one can. And he was like pushing back against that. He's like fighting back against that. Um, that was a, a, a big debate at that time. And I think that that may have been what got him in trouble, you know, with, with the humanists at the time, because they were saying that, look, God has created a, uh, um, a sphere of redemption that we live in now. And if we can do the best that we can with whatever that we're given, more grace will be given to us. And if more grace is given to us, we can then perpetuate on. And this is the justification process. And Luther's like, no justifications all at once. You're completely wrong about this. Um, and the other side of it is then synteresis. And synteresis is that there was still a spark of righteousness left in mankind after the fall to where, you know, it always, it always pushes us. It always inclines us to the, the good, to the right, to, you know, to that. Yeah. And um, yeah. there were two schools of, of, of thought on that. Aquinas was one who, who would say that it's, um, it's, it's a natural habit that we, that we possess where, um, St. Bonaventure then went, I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Went and said, no, it's actually joined to the will and to our will and pushes that direction. I know if you've read any Jonathan Edwards, you know, he destroys that like, you know, free will argument in his, um, uh, in his uh, treatise on, on, on the will. Um, so we, we, we're now at this place within reformed theology where it, it's starting out with, okay, we have faith, but we we've lost the deep rich meaning of it from um from the yeah. jewish perspective in the early church um, yeah plan for a couple hours because you got to start pressuring me on this stuff because once i get through this yeah. and then i i present the view that i'm going to present because if i just did it now it would sound so foreign. I, I, I didn't know you had this. it would sound so foreign. <laughs> i think you probably ought to you probably ought to condense it some though man i'm telling you it's all over it's, I feel like I'm getting all of your knowledge about this, mm-hmm. like all your studies. Like I'm going to need your study. And you're getting really excited as you're studying mm-hmm. so many things. But it's kind of like, just give me the sum, you know, where we're okay. getting and stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and, and I could. But like if, if I did that, then you would just say, what? How are you even understanding that? That's That would be the problem. Let me ask. What's that? Let me ask a question okay. about it. And you said, let me ask the question whenever it comes up then I can kind of, we can get into this okay. discussion. So about basically it. what I'm saying, just to summarize all this here is that by the time we get to the reformation, okay. the understanding of, of just the concept of faith is, um, a, a hollow shell of what it once was and its relation to Christ yeah. and its relation to justification. And so the reformers now have the problem of this inherited theology that they're using when it comes to faith to try and, and come up with these doctrines. And I think that they did the best that they can, but as we've seen their influence to today has left us with nothing but a works-based salvation where faith has become a work. All right. I like it. So when we come back, when we do this, you know, when we get back together, I'll jump right into immediately. Your explanation. I mean, you're, 
You'll, my you, articulation, you, which I which I call the the TPC view, okay. and we will yeah we will we'll we'll dig into that. I'll give you the definition of it, and and then you can start okay hammering me with questions. Hey, thanks for listening to Divergent Theology. You can visit our websites at credohouse.org or thetheologypit.com and make a donation. Support the ministry that way. Now, here's a quick look at next week's Divergent Theology. Damn, that's too big a word. You come up with something different right now. TPC view? That's yeah. why I'm calling it that. <laughs> sure. Fine. The biblically Christological view. There you go. <laughs> there How about you go. that? Okay. That won't irritate I, I anybody. Can, I can pull that one off. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to say, so what I'm going to say here, first off, is that our, our view of justification by faith is a trilateral understanding. Okay, and it's a trilateral understanding of the faith of the justifying agent for the one who is not righteous.